0: Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Stefan Guillene. Stefan spent 11 years in the neuroscience research world studying neurodegenerative disease and the neuroscience of body fatness. His book, The Hungry Brain, was named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly and called Essential by the New York Times Book Review. He's the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, a nonprofit that publishes free expert reviews of popular nutrition books. This is part one of our conversation. We will discuss why you need to be very careful believing the claims even in the most popular, seemingly highly scientific health and fitness books, from the most surprising examples of misinformation, to the shocking answer to the question of what percentage of literature is actually scientifically accurate, to the unbelievable reasons why authors publish wrong statements, and how you can better assess the quality of a source. If you don't want to fall for bullshit, listen to this episode. Enjoy. Stefan, what made you create Red Pen Reviews?
1: Yeah, so my initial inspiration came from really two places. Number one was my frustration with the quality of popular nutrition information. The information that most people are exposed to on nutrition and health, there is a lot of it that is just not very high quality, and that's causing people to make suboptimal decisions about their health. And also just misleading people, which is annoying, including me. I've been misled pretty severely by nutrition misinformation in the past. And the frustration was the first piece. The second piece was inspiration from a friend of mine, Seth Yoder, who was doing detailed citation checks of popular nutrition books. His method was very simple. He would take popular nutrition books, he would look at the citations, the references they were citing to support their claims, And he would just look them up one after the other, and he would write what he found on his website. And what he found was frankly shocking that some of these books that not only claim to be evidence-based, because of course almost all of them claim to be evidence-based, but were commonly taken by the public as evidence-based and even had very good reviews sometimes in respected media like New York Times or... The Atlantic, some of these books were just grossly misrepresenting the references that they were citing. And so when I saw the power of such a simple method of just going through the citations and seeing whether they're accurately represented in the book, I thought that that might be something we should start doing more systematically. And however, these reviews were extremely time consuming. This is before... My friend Seth had kids and he had all this time on his hands to to do a project like this. And he would spend hours and hours doing these reviews, clearly not feasible to do at scale. And what I started thinking about is how could we do something like this, but make it both more efficient and better? So can we not just check citations to make sure they're accurate, but can we go into the scientific literature and check key factual claims in the book? Can we evaluate the healthfulness of these books? And can we do it in a way that's as objective as possible using a semi-quantitative scoring scale? So as objective and as consistent as possible between books. So take out as much as possible the human bias. You can never take all of it out, but remove as much of it as possible. And so that's what gave birth to the Red Pen Reviews method.
0: What are some of the key ways in a simplified way, how you review such a book? What's the methodology?
1: Yeah, so we review across three metrics. The first is scientific accuracy, the second is reference accuracy, and the third is healthfulness. And each of those is scored on a semi-quantitative scale, which means that we have numbers associated with certain descriptions that determine what numerical score it gets. For example, So we have a zero to four scoring scale, and four would be, for example, the claim is very well supported by the scientific evidence overall. Zero would be the claim is opposed by the scientific evidence. So not only unsupported, but actually the evidence says the opposite. So we review claims for the scientific accuracy section. We select three representative claims. That are really core to what the book is claiming and we do scientific literature reviews to to really try to evaluate how well supported are these by the bulk of the evidence then for the citations we just look we randomly select 10 citations in the book and then we score those again on a semi-quantitative scale and then for the helpfulness we say how likely is this the program the book is recommending how likely is it to help the conditions the book is trying to target specifically so it could be obesity it could be diabetes it could be something else second how healthy is it for general health and then third is it meeting nutritional needs are there is this diet going to create any nutritional deficiencies or is it better is it going to supply everything your body needs and more so those are the three things that go into healthfulness and so all of those get translated into numerical scores and then translated into percentage scores so this is one of the things that i think is really cool is when you land on a review page the first thing is score bars at the top just really easy to digest percentage score bars for the overall score which is the average of those three domains and then below You get the scientific accuracy score, the reference accuracy score, and the healthfulness score. So in literally five seconds, you're already coming away with really easy to digest and actionable information about the information quality of that book. But then below is the lengthy um, review where we justify all of those scores in great detail. So you can do as little detail or as much as you want.
0: I personally very much appreciate the work that you are doing because of my business, but also the podcast. I get in contact with a lot of different sources and books and topics and more often than not, some of the things that are claimed in these books seem to be too simple or contradict things that I have the feeling I have a very good grasp about, or at least misrepresent them to a certain way and so i'm coming back to my initial statement i really appreciate the work that you're doing to start from the top in your experience to get us now emotionally riled up a little bit what has (laughs) been the most surprising or potentially dangerous example of misinformation in a popular health book
1: yeah so i'm going to give you two examples and Because we get to, you could break it down into two types of misinformation. One is just like weird and extreme and funny. And the other one I would say is more dangerous. And in the weird and extreme and funny category. So on our reviews, we, we have a section that is the most unusual claim section. And that's where we just try to find like, what's the weirdest claim this book makes? And can we evaluate it? And sometimes the claims hold up. So it's not necessarily always that they're false, uh, but often they are. So like, just to give you an example, um, in the book Grain Brain, um, there's a page that makes claims about the diets that our ancestors ate. And there's no citations to support any of this, but there's just this kind of pie chart that shows that our ancestors ate a diet that was 75% fat, 20% protein and 5% carbohydrate. So basically a ketogenic diet was what our ancestors ate until relatively recently in human history, according to this book. No citation, nothing, just this like wild claim that our ancestors had this pretty extreme diet composition. And so that's an example of one of the kind of fanciful ones where the author basically just makes something up to support the argument they're making in the book. So that
0: one was incorrect?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's. there's, first of all, no evidence supporting that our ancestors had a diet that was like that. And second of all, the evidence that we do have suggests that they didn't have a diet like that pretty much anywhere you look whether it's the archaeological evidence or anthropological evidence of historical and and currently existing hunter gatherers you're going to see that almost all of them were eating more carbohydrate than 5% of calories not all of them but almost all of them and then i would say the more when we get into the mo- more dangerous claims Probably the number one claim that I see that is probably causing the most health burden from these books is the claim that high LDL cholesterol is not harmful. So there's a basically what the way it works out is that diet advocates who are advocating for diets that tend to increase LDL cholesterol like more lower carb, higher saturated fat, carnivore type diets. Often those advocates will say that LDL cholesterol is not important. So so called bad cholesterol, the one that contributes to cardiovascular disease, they'll have all these arguments about why it actually doesn't matter. This diet can increase your LDL to through the roof and it doesn't matter because LDL is irrelevant or this diet is so healthy that it will negate all those effects or things like that. Whatever drawback a diet has, often advocates will try to downplay that drawback. But with some of these low carb or carnivore diets, that's really probably the number one drawback is that some people, not everyone, experiences that increase in LDL cholesterol. Basically getting people to ignore that and think it's not important, I think is just extremely bad and dangerous advice. Yeah.
0: In this case, this really sounds like it's not just, um, you know, overstating certain facts and you might not get the real benefit of what the book claims, but that could be dangerous.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And I don't want to say that these books are necessarily harming people on balance. They probably do have some helpful advice too. Most people who go on a low-carb diet and lose weight from that are probably going to benefit from it in terms of their health. Um, However, they're not going to get as much overall health benefit as if they did care about their LDL and maybe they modified their diet so it didn't go quite as high. You can be on on a low-carb diet that is that doesn't raise your LDL at all or as much, or if you're on a diet that does raise your LDL, you can talk to your doctor about it and maybe get some kind of drug that will help reduce that. So there are things that can be done. It's not like an unsolvable problem. You can even stay on your diet and solve the problem even within that context. Yeah.
0: Are there any other currently popular themes Top, top of your head where you'd say, hey, if you dig into the evidence, it's at least not as clear as the headline tries to say?
1: Yeah, I would say almost anywhere you look in popular nutrition books, you're going to find claims that are overstated. So for example, we I, sometimes I talk a lot about kind of low carb and, and carnivore books, because those are very popular right now. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of low quality information coming out of those communities, but it's true of almost any community you want to look at. So if you look at vegan diets, there are claims that it can prevent cancer. Um, there are claims that animal foods cause cancer, uh, that there are misleading claims like in The book, The China Study, which is a really important book in the vegan community. We reviewed that one on Red Pen Reviews. There are misleading claims about the data coming from this huge study called The China Study. Basically, it didn't support any of the book's claims, but they misrepresent it as if it did. So yeah, honestly, almost anywhere you look, books about Alzheimer's disease, there are now really popular books that claim that some special diet can prevent or even reverse alzheimer's disease we reviewed one called the end of alzheimer's and the evidence supporting these claims is just greatly exaggerated so yeah like i said almost those are some examples but almost anywhere you look there's going to be wide variation in the information quality of the claims that are made and i would say The, the overwhelming majority of these books, even if they're fairly evidence based, they're probably exaggerating.
0: That would be my next question. So if we try to give an average answer of what's the state of accuracy in that type of literature, so you just said, Hey, the overwhelming majority will at least over-exaggerate you could, while it's not good, you could somehow understand why people are doing that and over-exaggerating is probably the less, least worst thing that they can do. What about, what about the rough ballpark percentage of books that make false claims? One, false claims that change details around their overall claim and two, false claims that really change the whole narrative, the main claim of the book.
1: Yeah, those, as you said, exaggeration is really probably the most common thing. So people will read things in a way, read evidence in a way that's favorable to their argument, or they'll do citation bias where they're only citing some pieces of evidence or not others, or only choosing certain outcomes in a study. I think that it's less common that people are just completely making stuff up, like, in the example I gave from Grain Brain about how our ancestors used to eat. It's less common that people are just completely making stuff up, but that does happen too. And often it'll happen in a domain where there's not a lot of evidence and people are just talking about anecdotes. And even there, they're not necessarily making stuff up. They're just talking about their experience or the experience of people that they've interacted with either people they know in their community or clients of theirs, they'll communicate via anecdote in a way where they're not lying about it, but they are interpreting things in a certain way that is not very convincing from an evidence standpoint. So first of all, you have anecdotes themselves are are not very strong evidence. And then you don't know which anecdotes they are conveying to you. They might not be giving you a representative sample, right? They, they're not telling you about the person who tried their approach and it failed miserably. They're telling you about the success stories. And so, yeah, there are many ways in which this happens. And I think most people are not probably straight up lying, or at least not intentionally. I think most people probably really believe what they're saying and they're just constructing a narrative in their head from bits and pieces that fit their narrative and ignoring the other stuff.
0: That would be my next question. Do you have a hypothesis on the why people do that? Is there anything you would like to add to what you just said in in terms of people? Most of them don't really mean anything bad, but they have a narrative and they're basically, their bias is to pick and select those, that evidence and those stories that support that narrative.
1: Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of reasons why people tend to do this. A lot of these people, probably most of them are really convinced that they have a great idea and they're trying to help people and get the word out. I think probably the motivation is pretty sincere for a lot of them. And also I'll say that I'm, I don't really, I I try not to judge people's intentions and I don't want to judge people's intentions. I can't read people's minds. So I tend to assume uh, the best about most people. Maybe I'm naive, but <laughs> that's how I work about their intentions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their actions are evidence-based. Yeah, I think part of the reason is that there are massive incentives to produce misinformation in the nutrition space. If you think about what makes, a, let's just say, a book compelling, but the same applies to a tweet or a web page or whatever, Novelty is huge. So people don't want to hear that the same thing that they've been hearing from experts for the last 50 years is still true, right? That's so boring. Calories still matter for your body weight. Who wants to hear that?
0: Nobody's going to buy a book about that, right? A question that I would have is does the. Average person really want to have accuracy, because what does accuracy mean? There are studies who have a very specific design and all of them look at a very specific subset of the question likely. And what do people want in, in addition to novelty? They want to have simple answers to their problems. And if the headline yeah. says you should, if the headline would say, do this, if X, do that, if Y, do, do that, if Z, if there are... Eight branches of answers that you give, though, or or you have six disclaimers behind every piece, the whole power g- gets lost. And so, if you want to get your message out, it has to be simple. It has to promise yeah. you something great. It has to be what you said, novel. It's if you don't do that, you don't write a best selling. You don't write a best selling yeah. book. That's the unfortunate t- truth. It seems.
1: Yeah, I agree. People want simplicity. They want hope. They want. I, they want they want solutions to their problems and they want enthusiasm and all of those things are things that contribute to a book getting to the top of the heap in terms of people seeing it in terms of people purchasing it. But those are also things that can drive misinformation. And simplicity, I, I think simplicity is it is a genuinely, good thing, right? If you can really make something simple that can be made simple, that's a good thing. However, it creates an incentive for oversimplification in some of these contexts. And there is an incentive for oversimplification. There's an incentive for exaggeration, to get people excited, to give people hope. And there is an incentive for the novelty. And then on the other side, it's, okay, those are the incentives. Those are the reasons why people might write a book like this. Those are the reasons why those books might be more successful in the the public marketplace. But on the other side, you can ask, what are the factors that are holding this back? What are the factors that are preventing this from happening? And the answer is almost nothing. The answer is basically (laughs) read 10 reviews, and we've reviewed 21 books so far. So it's out of the hundreds or thousands of books that are out there there is very little disincentive to making low quality nutrition claims because there's basically zero accountability right now. So people can make these wild claims and most of the audience is not equipped to evaluate those claims effectively. And the people who are equipped to evaluate those claims are generally not taking the time to point out the problem. And when they do, it's not going viral on social media or it's not ending up with the people who need to see it. And there's a huge accountability deficit in this space. And that's what we're trying to correct with Red Pen Reviews. We're trying to say, actually, you know, if you make low quality claims, it's going to be identified and and consumers are going to be able to see it now. If you make high quality claims, that's going to be identified. And consumers are going to see that that's going to affect your book's reputation. It's going to affect sales. It's going to affect everything that you care about. Just to give you another example, flesh this out a little bit. Publishers do not fact check books. That's just not a thing that they generally do. At least in the health and nutrition space. There's nothing like that. Like when I published my book, I asked, I actually asked my publisher, I was like, Hey, when's the fact check going to be? And they're like, what? (laughs) And so I sent out my chapters to experts to have them reviewed because that was something I wanted to do. But their position was like, this isn't our job. You're the expert. Why would we fact check the expert? We're not experts. And so there's just almost zero accountability right now. So there's all these incentives pushing toward misinformation, and there's almost nothing pushing against it right now.
0: I love the mission that you're on, and I find this so important. When I think about what we read in books and scientific, even sometimes scientific journals, it's startling to think that you think about just how much of it could be skewed by biases and hidden agendas. And it's not comfortable to admit, but skepticism is really important when consuming Media, not only in that space, but it's also there. And especially if you take the, these ground-breaking claims, for example, the simpler and the more sensational they sound, and the the more hope they give you, the more you want them to be true. The more you need to question their validity. And it, it goes so far that at that average level of scientific accuracy, you you should call it fiction or entertainment or marketing. <laughs> I What you do, I couldn't speak more to my heart. And I understand the challenge and the frustration that going through all of that work, that bestseller book got all that attention with those claims, but then really fact-checking it. And the great cases were, hey, absolutely fine. There's a checkbook and there are then these really bad cases. Where did that shit come from? That that just gets too little attention, which is also a topic that hopefully also via this podcast, we're able to support to some extent. But at the end of this chapter in in our episode to help our listeners when you evaluate sources when you evaluate a book when you think about whether you want to invest the time to read that book whether you actually want to put the trust into a book and follow the recommendations what are the key indicators you should look for to at least try to distinguish between genuinely scientific health advice and pseudoscience and popular literature
1: yeah that's a great question and we're trying to do this somewhat scientifically with our reviews to say what features of a book predict the accuracy of the claims in it and i don't think we're quite there to be able to say this in a data driven way yet but i do have some thoughts that i've collected over the years about what i think subjectively tends to predict books that have higher or lower information value the first thing is If a book is making extraordinary, unusual claims, so if they're saying everything you thought you know, everything experts think they know about X is wrong and here's the real deal, that right there is a red flag. It doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. It doesn't always mean they're wrong, but I would say probably 90 plus percent of the time, probably more like 99 plus percent of the time is probably wrong or at least misleading in some way. Expertise of the author. So is the author a true expert in this subject? So are they a researcher in the area? That does not, unfortunately, does not guarantee accuracy. It's just a factor that increases the probability of accuracy. So we've seen that experts tend to get better scores when they're talking about their field, but not always true. So they can even get low scores. Um, people are books that try to explain everything with one idea. Here's the one idea that explains everything about health and body weight or whatever. That's also a red flag. I think that is a red flag for an ideological mindset. This person has one big idea. They have a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Glucose um, management. <laughs> yeah. That's an example. So. That doesn't mean that what they're saying is wrong, but it does often mean that they might be biased to looking at the world through that lens and missing other important lenses. Are they able to show nuance? So can they say, all right, here's the evidence for this, but you shouldn't also know about this other thing that undermines it, or here's a limitation of this evidence I'm citing. Those types of things are... If they can show nuance, that's a good sign. If they cannot show nuance, if literally everything in the world appears to support their argument, then that's a bad sign. Um, And is there conspiracy thinking? Are they blaming the government? Are they blaming authority structures? That I think is a red flag. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. That could be true in some cases. But I think it's a red flag because authors often, especially American, because this is like an American cultural thing to hate the government and hate, uh, you know, authority structures. So I think especially this happens, I think, globally, but especially in the U.S., people really lean heavily on the um, anti-authority messaging. Not only is my idea true, but not only is my idea correct, but... The government has been trying to make you sick by saying the opposite some some an argument like that i think that's a red flag similarly assigning like painting their adversaries as bad so not only do people who agree with me not only are they wrong but they're actually bad they're just like they lie all the time and they're constantly lying and they're unpleasant people to be around. Like when a book tries to focus, tries to make you think that the other people that they disagree with are like morally bad. I think that's a really bad sign that the book is trying to emotionally manipulate you into believing the argument instead of just presenting evidence. So often they'll portray people as corrupt or stupid or dishonest who, who believe in, who disagree with them. And they'll really spend a lot of time to show you how bad these people are who believe something different. And then the final one, and I think this is pervasive with diet books, but maybe some more with some topics than others is, does the topic relate to personal identity? Or is it highly political or controversial? I think those are the kind of topics that And diet is something that does relate to personal identity, right? So I think that's part of why we get so much ideology in this space is it relates to identity. And books that relate strongly to personal identity, that's where people are often more inclined to get carried away by ideology.
0: It almost feels that a lot of the points that you said is the more entertaining a book is, the more I really want to read it. I have the feeling it's a must read. The more a lot of the red flags that you mentioned, or not red flags, but indicators that there there could be something wrong are being checked. Yeah. This was part one of my conversation with Stefan. In part two, We'll dive into the hungry brain, outsmarting the instincts that make us overeat, why discipline and willpower are overrated when it comes to becoming lean and strong, how the ancient wires in our brain trick us into overeating and sabotaging our fitness plans, and the powerful strategies to achieve your fitness goals that actually work. This was so enlightening.